Joining me on the line are Gabby Jackson and Hesri van Heerden, both of whom work for FACTS, Food and Allergy Consulting and Testing Services in Stellenbosch. They're a multidisciplinary team of experts with skills including medical, food science, dietetic, genetic and commercial. So Gabby is a registered dietitian and a regulatory consultant at FACTS. She's um, works with industry on regulatory affairs and compliance, as well as um, consulting with patients in her private practice. History is a food scientist at FACTS. She works with the food industry, assisting with queries relating to the management of allergens in processing facilities. Together, they've been looking um, this year into plant-based products and claims, what the regulations say, and the potential risk to the allergic consumer, as well as considering the potential regulatory gaps. So let's start with Gabby. I'm hoping we have Gabby on the line. Hello, Gabby. How's it, Randy? Hello. Thank you for joining me. Um, Why do you think that growing numbers of consumers are moving towards plant-based eating plans? What's driving that trend? Well, Wendy, I think that we need to keep in mind that there are a number of different factors. It's not just just one factor in particular. Um, You know, there, there is, by and large, a big sort of movement globally towards more sustainable living. And a lot of research has been done into the sustainability of focusing on more of a plant-based type diet, um, moving away from having a lot of animal-based products. Mm. Uh, We know that the methane um, output, for example, on a lot of cattle farms is absolutely huge and and has a huge impact on the environment. Right. And there's been a lot of publicity around that. So the consciousness is growing. Exactly. And and it's something that, as I say, globally, we see seeing this movement. And I think South Africans, we are, we do tend to be quite um, passionate about our environment and mm. wanting to, to look after it. So I think that that's definitely one of the big driving factors. And then, you know, we've seen a lot of research and all of these Netflix documentaries and all, sure. all sorts of weird yes. and wonderful things coming out. And it's sort of caused the, the consumer. And, and what I've started to see is, is seeing more consumers actually opening their minds up to the possibility of, you know, eating a plant-based diet in, you know, as a professional athlete, because actually, you know, there's a documentary on Netflix called Game Changers, which many people watched. And all of a sudden I had this flood of people coming in <laughs> to see me in practice saying, I watched Game Changers. I'm, I'm going on to a plant-based Help diet. Help me do it. Yes. <laughs> and then, of course, the ethical sort of not wanting to to consume animals, there's always, you know, a large group of people who, who you know, feel that way strongly about about that just from purely the animal beyond sustainability and beyond um, health reasons. It's just I do not want to um, consume animals. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's very important to sort of understand from the get-go before we sort of launch into the, the conversation that, there isn't just one mm, term that we can use for this collective that is this movement. Um, because it's not just people choosing to go vegan. Because vegan veganism is typically what, what is referred to as being the lifestyle of staying away from or avoiding any animal-based products, including things like leather, you know, shoes and belts yes. and so on and so forth. So veganism is, is a much bigger and much broader term within the plant-based movement we have got different types of vegetarianism that also happen and then we also have um, you know people who actually don't necessarily decide to go full on vegetarian or vegan 
but they decide to make a conscious decision to start reducing their, their meat consumption. So talk to me about the term flexitarian. Where does that fit in, into all of this space? Well, flexitarian, I think, is, was sort of a term to um, put to those people that actually aren't going to go full-on vegetarian or full-on vegan. And, um, you know, it, it became very difficult at a stage when everyone only knew about vegetarianism. And then, you know, you'd sort of come along and say, well, I'm mostly vegetarian, but every now and again I'll eat a bit of fish or yes. every now and again I'll have a bit of chicken or something like that. And I think it became very difficult for consumers to actually identify to something and say, you know, this is actually what I'm doing or this is why I'm doing it. And I think that's where that, that term of flexitarian sort of saying, well, I'm making a conscious decision to reduce my animal product intake, specifically from a dietary point of view, but I'm not... Not ready to commit to vegetarian. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Yes, it is definitely a commitment. (laughs) Okay. So one of the things we're going to be discussing is do the labeling regulations support this growing category, let's let's limit it for now to uh, vegetarianism and veganism. Is there enough regulatory support so that those who choose those eating plans can trust mm. the labels that they find on, on the packaging of, of the food that they're wanting to consume? Yeah, well, uh, from a regulatory standpoint, in terms of what is in, in black and white in the legislation, we do know that... Um, the terms such as vegetarian, lacto-vegetarian, or over-vegetarian, so it's saying that you will, you're a vegetarian but you consume milk products or vegetarian and you consume egg products or mm. whatever it may be, those are all very well defined in the regulations. We sometimes see that there is a bit of a, a gap in terms of where the consumer understanding is and also the way that it's being utilized in industry. Sometimes we find terms being used interchangeably. Um, as I said, you know, just looking at the plant-based movement as a whole, there's so many different levels. And we sometimes find that those terms get used interchangeably um, in in industry and by consumers, mm. although they are all relatively well-defined as things stand in the legislation. Okay. It does seem, though, that people really need to, who are restricting their diets in certain ways, really need to le- look beyond the front of the pack and read the small print ingredients list, etc. Because I had a woman, Cape Talk listener called Anne, who emailed me a few months ago to say that she'd bought an own brand vegetable curry from a local supermarket. So it was the brand of the supermarket. And just before she ate it, she read the um, ingredients on the label, at the back of the label, and found that it had shellfish in it. She's um, was choosing to eat a vegetarian, what she thought was a vegetarian product. But more than that, mm-hmm. she has got a very critical allergy to shellfish. So she asked me, how do, how do they include a shellfish ingredient in a vegetarian dish? I once bought an over-the-counter capsule. It contained shellfish extract, but that was only revealed in the small print package insert and not even on the box. She hadn't heard from the retailer by the time she got hold of me, but I predicted that they would say that the label is legally compliant because the shellfish Mm -hmm. content as an allergen was declared in the list of ingredients and and singled out as an allergen present, uh, albeit on the back of the pack. And while the product was described as a vegetable curry, it was not said to be a vegetarian product. And I thought, and that's exactly what they did come back to her to say. And I also predicted that they would say that anybody who has such a critical allergy, such as nuts or shellfish, would always check the allergens on the label of any prepared food before purchase. And that's what happened. So they were legally um, 
they were within the regulatory framework, right? But do you feel that perhaps allergen is is an is an argument to be made that that shellfish um, content should have been declared on the front of the pack where it couldn't be missed, not only for those vegetarians who choose to eat no uh, meat content, but also for people such as Anne who also have a critical allergy. You, I mean, so it, it, it's as far as I'm aware, that's a, it was a compliant label, but didn't go far enough. Is that an example of some of the re- regulatory gaps, possibly that that you're um, looking at? Absolutely. You know, the thing is, we've got this very difficult um, balance that we're trying to strike because vegan and vegetarian labeling is not necessarily the same as allergen labeling. And we cannot use the two interchangeably. And we can't always consider that a product that is being marketed vegan, although it may not actively have any animal-based products in in it, we have to sort of start to understand the processing environment of the um, manufacturing sort of facilities. And um, it's very difficult to find that balance of making sure that we are managing the allergens, not not potentially causing risk risk to these consumers yeah. who, you know, if not controlled properly, it can actually cause death. So we know that there are very serious risks. But we can't necessarily consider that a vegan claim is going to be a, a foolproof way of knowing that there's absolutely no yeah. um, other animal-based protein sure. in a product. But if a minefield for, for, for those... Consumers, the, the people who have allergies and those who are restricting their or eliminate, wanting to eliminate um, animal content to try and navigate and make sure that they don't accidentally, um, you know, consume something that they really didn't want to. Just a reminder to listeners, if you want to join the conversation, add in some personal experience with um, labeling or what you consider to be mislabeling, mislabeling, call us on 021-446-0567, send us an SMS on 31567, or leave a voice note on 072-567-1567. I want to turn to history now. Um, history, are there any regulations that manage possible contamination of these products with animal products in a manufacturing facility or a restaurant kitchen where they are um, preparing both animal uh, foods with animal content and those um, destined for a vegetarian or a vegan customer? Hi, Wendy. Hi. Um, so the, the short answer is no. There's no direct regulations or regulatory guidelines um, on how to manage contamination of vegan products with animal mm-hmm. products. And I think this is probably the question we get most often from industry is their first question is always, you know, legally, should we control it? Is there any guidelines? And then they would always ask, but how do we control it then? And then thirdly, you know, how do we prove that it's a vegan product? So from our experience, as soon as there's these, this gap in regulations or this gray area in regulations, it leaves it open to interpretation and all manufacturing is doing their own thing. Um, and, you know, one manufacturer might put a disclaimer on the product and the mm. other won't. So consumers won't always understand it. So as soon as there's a gap in regulations and it's a confusion on the food industry side, it will most likely lead or result in a confusion on the consumer side. Okay, so that. Kind of the mention of restaurants reminds me of a case that I covered a couple of years ago. Um, TV and radio personality Willie Bogile Mobocha went into aphylactic shock 
in um, the, a branch of Kolkatia, actually at Emperor's Palace. She had to be rushed to hospital after being served a salad containing nuts. Despite informing the waiter and the restaurant's chef of her allergy and, and, and being assured that there were no nuts in the salad, she, they couldn't stabilize her when she reacted badly. And as I say, she went to hospital. And later, the staff revealed that there was pesto in the dressing, described on the menu as truffle yuzu dressing. So no indication there that there was pesto in it. Um, is it true, history, that um, nuts are the most serious food allergy? Was it shellfish? So I think uh, it's difficult, you know, it's not to say the one allergen is worse than the other. I think, you know, a person that is allergic, they can have, you know, it varies from the type of reaction they can have. Someone can be severely allergic to soil. Someone can be severely allergic to tree nuts. So there's not one allergen you should say, you know, this is the worst one. I think each one will have its own risk for each person. For each person. Okay. So in general, then, how serious do you think, from your experience, the restaurant industry is about ensuring that... You know, any all allergens are declared. And in this case, the menu creator told me that she chose not to include the fact that her salad's creamy uh, dressing had pesto in it because it was, you know, an intellectual property thing. She didn't want her competitors mm-hmm. to know, which I found quite alarming. Um, she she did genuinely seem to be unaware of the fact that it was, you know, a very serious health issue for for customers who are allergic to nuts. But generally, um, what do you what do you what's your take on 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 this issue and how aware the owners restaurant owners are about you know how critical it is to declare all allergens. So I think, you know, from a manufacturer's side and pre-packed food, you know, the regulations are quite clear in terms of allergen control and labeling allergens and what's the right thing to do there. Yeah, but restaurants? That's where it gets tricky because, Mm. you know, there's no concrete regulations yet in terms of exactly what they should. How do they disclaim it? You know, how do you put it on the menus? Do you just um, inform with the waiter? So there's definitely also a gap there in our regulations that needs to be addressed. Um, I think a re- you know restaurant industry they should have food safety you know certain food safety requirements in place, but I think you know it's at the end of the day it's such a massive risk, especially when it comes to allergens. So it's something that needs to be taken seriously, and it's each restaurant's responsibility to ensure you know the consumers that come to them that they are they get safe food to eat, and that includes you know allergens. Okay. So it's definitely something very serious and that needs to be addressed. Um, it's even though, you know, you like you say, it, it might be, you know, they don't want to give away the recipe, but it's someone's life on the line. Exactly. So, have, yeah, so it's just, this, you know, claiming what allergens are in the product and what may be there due to cross-contamination. So what would you say to both the restaurant owner and to patrons, uh, the restaurant owner in terms of, you know, getting the declarations right, and to the consumer who, I mean, I don't think there was anything um, in the case of Wille Bochile that she could have done differently. She asked several times of both mm. the, the chef and the, the waiter and was assured that there's, um, there was no nuts. And then only afterwards, oh, yeah, pesto. <laughs> um, any, any message for somebody um, who, but either on the, on the vegan or vegetarian front, I mean, you have the, the vegetable soup that's got a bit of beef stock in it, for example. Mm. What sort of advice, what, what advice would you have for both the restaurateur and, and the consumer in terms of not um, – falling foul of, of of their commitments and on the consumer side, you know, um, making sure that you're not mm-hmm. unwittingly consuming something that you either wish not to or that you're um, highly allergic to. 
Well, it's it's both responsibility. You know, it's the consumer's responsibility to make sure they make the informed decision. So asking the right questions, mm-hmm. you know, checking the right things. But then it's also the restaurant's responsibility or the food industry's responsibility to ensure they have the right information for that customer to make the informed decision. And in terms of allergens and vegans, I think, you know, something that we have learned through all the research we have been doing is that it's very important to remember that vegan and vegetarian labeling is not intended and should not be interpreted as allergen labeling so it's two separate consumers Um, and I think that's the main thing to remember is to treat them differently but keeping in mind you know even though allergens and vegan are different that your allergic consumer or someone suffering from a food allergy might assume that a vegan claim is the same as an allergen free claim Mm. and that they would assume the product doesn't contain any animal substances Here's, a, yeah, responsibility. Here's an interesting one, either for Gabby or history. Um, a comment from Julian who says, flavoring is not an ingredient. Stabilizer is not an ingredient. Labeling in South Africa leaves a lot to be desired. Do you have any comments on that? So he's saying they're not, mm-hmm. they, they're not declaring what's in those stabilizers or flavorings and, and that um, doesn't serve the consumer. I think I'm, I'm happy to jump, jump onto that one. Um, you know, it, it's a very fine line because if you are an educated consumer and you can look at the sort of the names, these very complicated chemical names of, an, uh, you know, a lot of these stabilizers yeah. and, and so on and so forth have these very complicated names. But it can also become quite scary if you're a consumer who doesn't necessarily understand the sort of food science and um, sure. the chemistry behind it to sort of see all these big words and strange names on the on the back of your pack and i think that that's sort of the intention is to make sure that consumers don't have this sort of um unnecessary concern over the types of ingredients that are going in because all of the stabilizers and you know anti-foaming agents and all those kinds of additives that are being used they all go through massive big international sort of vetting processes to ensure that they are safe for consumers um, and to ensure that they're not being used in food products where it could potentially be harmful to the consumer. So it's it's that very fine line again to walk between not having a label that has you know five lines of all of these weird and wonderful chemical names, um, and you know in, in the international sort of labeling space they're going towards clean labeling. They're calling it clean labeling, yeah. but. Um, we don't necessarily, as things stand at the moment, our regulatory system doesn't necessarily allow for that because we can't call a natural flavorant a natural flavorant. Yeah. We can only call it a flavorant. Huh. Um, so not much it, it, a declaration there. No, definitely not. And if you look at it from the sort of chemical side, they a, a natural flavoring and a synthesized flavoring chemically look exactly same. the same. Yes, I've heard that. So, so it's, yeah. as I said, it's very fine lines that you have to walk and it, it is very difficult, but we have to keep sort of the, the general consumer in mind when we look at the way that legislation is written. We don't want to confuse. Too consumers. much. Yeah, the fine line between not overwhelming with information and, and declaring things that they really would that is in their interest to know. Thank you so much to both of you for your input. I'm going to leave with a comment from another listener who says, 
Her mother was allergic to cucumber and it was very difficult in terms of salads, she says. Often restaurants would just take out the cucumber, which was not sufficient for her allergy. And I think, yeah, it's, it's an example of how much, uh, what potential there is for learning on some restaurants' part in terms of just how critical some of these allergies are and what they can and can't do in order to serve the customers who have certain allergies. Um, thank you so much again to both of you. Um, most definitely food for thought. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Bye-bye.